Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our season of Scorsese with a new, much deeper deep dive into Goodfellas. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, this is the outlaw John Roca, writer, producer, and host and movie critic here in San Diego, California. And Steve, I'm super excited to be diving into this movie after so long since we did the last ep- uh, last attempt at this movie. And so many of our listeners and uh, our watchers have told us that they want us wanted us to dive into this movie and give it the cinephiles treatment. And so here we go, man. Here we go. Uh, it's funny. I'll say exactly what I was saying just a moment ago off yeah. mic, which is I am super excited because the whole way we looked at film when we started the cinephiles, which is totally different because yeah. then we just watched the movie and then we talked about the movie. Yeah. And yeah. now it's like, no, we study the movie and research yeah. and break down and really look into things. And man, I, I do not, I am not saying that complicated stories, lots of dialogue, complicated camera moves is what makes a great film. Right. But I there could be a very, very simple story with that's very simply done that could be one of the greatest films ever. But yeah. 
there is so much stuff going on in this movie that we did not address the first time because our first time we did Goodfellas, our episode was one hour and 19 minutes long. Ugh, that's madness. Absolute <laughs> madness. The whole Maybe, movie in an hour and 19 minutes. The discussion A long movie. Great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Needless to say, <laughs> this is going to be longer and much more in depth. And, and and I wanted to say just one thing that really struck me before we get started, which is I see the movie really, really differently than I did before for one small reason, which I guess should have been obvious. But I, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think and what you mm. think as we go along. But in my brain, yeah, the character of Henry Hill was closer to the characters of Jimmy and Tommy mm. than I think of now. Do you mean now, in terms of age or do you mean in terms of temperament? I mean in terms of relationship, that they were more of oh. a threesome the way I thought of it, with Jimmy being the obvious leader. Yeah. But then and Tommy, you know, being full Sicilian so he could be a made person. Right. But then but other than that, I felt like, oh, Tommy and Henry, they're they're sort of even. They're sort of close to right. equals right and watching it now and and part of it is because i read the book wise guy and i've yeah. done more research but it's like oh i actually think that henry is jimmy and tommy might be important to henry i think henry is way less important to jimmy and tommy than i ever thought mm. and that's the, the the big thought that hit me well certainly that makes sense in the construction of the film right because you've got to feel some semblance of sympathy or like for henry so the further you pull him away from Tommy and Jimmy, who clearly have no redeeming qualities when you watch the movie, then it allows you as an audience just kind of subconsciously to feel some sympathy for Henry and Karen, to feel some connection to Henry and Karen as the story is told. Because we know, and I'm sure it'll come up as we talk about it, Steve, because it's been so long since this movie came out, that there is so much historical truth that has come out that conflicts a lot of what is laid out in the movie. So it's an excellent movie. It's not the full true story of what happened. So what you've got to do is make this guy more sympathetic than the other two dudes because you don't give them any kind of redemption arc, but you kind of give Henry and Karen somewhat of a redemption arc because they turn state's evidence. You know what I think a good metaphor for how I was thinking is, is mm. I, I, I know you've probably had this experience is like you and I have both occasionally met someone who's fairly famous or even had kind sure. of somewhat of a, you know, like they would know who we are. But when you're knowing someone famous, that relationship from your perspective is much more important than their relationship to you going the other way. Oh, yeah. Because they have a 10,000 people that meet them that right. go, oh, my God, I met this person. Right. But they don't think of all those 10,000 people as, oh, my God, I met this nobody, you know? Right, right. And so I think Jimmy is really important. He is an important person. And Tommy is also an important person. Yeah. And I think so from Henry's perspective to them, yeah. this is an important relationship. But it might not be so much in the other direction. Right, right. And also because Henry serves as kind of the audience in yeah. a lot of ways, right? Because he's narrating the film. He's guiding us through these moments. And so in a way, he has to feel somewhat removed. So I also think that works in the construction of the film as well. So I wanted to bring that up first just because that was my new perspective. And I wanted to sort of, you know, touch touch on that a few times as we move along. Can, but, I, can, I, can I add something to your perspective real quick? Yeah. I'll tell you this. Watching the movie now as an older person. I'm finding a lot of the older female actresses attractive in way that I in ways that I did when I was a 20 year old. That just tells you, like Henry's mom's a looker. I'm, I'm telling you this right now. Henry's mom is hot. Lorraine Bracco is hot at that time. So, like, you know, at, when I was a, when I was in my 20s watching it, I didn't have any of those thoughts. But watching it this time, I was like, 
man, this is a weird kind of experience for me, for sure. So <laughs> I did not have that thought, but I've had that thought in other movies, definitely. Um, uh, and, and of course, I need, we need to go back. I'm sure you answered this when I asked you this question six years ago, or however long it was since we did this the first time, but how did you first come to the film Goodfellas? Oh, opening night. Are you kidding? Yeah, opening night. Uh, even when I was, um, even when I didn't have a lot of friends to go see movies with, as I did, like when we got... When I moved to L.A. and obviously got to Florida State, um, this one came out, what, 92, 91, whenever it came out, or 90? And I just remember going to see it in the movie theater, most likely either with my best friend Maurice or by myself. And I don't remember what I said six years ago, but that's what it feels like to me. And I just remember like just being transfixed, man. This was at this time when I was becoming a person who understood what a great movie was when I watched it. And so immediately when I watched Goodfellas, I knew this is so perfect. Plus it, I just remember it hits harder for me. Cause like I have those impulses. I have those tendencies. I, I bought into the glorification to a degree of how the mafia is glorified in the film, you know? And so for me, this film has always had a kind of special place um, in my heart with how it kind of shows you that there's a path to walk that you could walk. And you could call this either mafia or gangs in the inner cities or whatever's going on in Latino countries or things of that nature. Like there is always uh, the tendency or the impulse or the possibility to default to certain things because in your mind you've constructed that they have more value or more worth or more strength to your life if you go into it young, but you don't know what it can lead to. The military is almost a version of this mm. as well. They try to grab you young so they can manipulate your mind to do certain things in the military that you would probably have much more questions about doing when you're in your 30s. So this any kind of uh, place likes to grab people young and indoctrinate them, and young and desperate, and indoctrinate them into this life. And then by the time they're in, they're too stuck to get out, you know? Dude, that's a great point because it, because we so romanticize things mm. when we're young and go and, and have the, you know, in the military, the perfect example of, you know, you picture the heroic movie oh, sure. and you're going to be that heroic thing. And the other thing about being young is it's totally impossible in your conception of your reality that you could die. Yes. Or that things could go wrong or you could get injured. And that's perfect, fits perfectly yeah. with Henry Hill at the beginning of this film. Yeah. Um, for me, and it's funny, I didn't go back and listen to Goodfellas either. <laughs> I don't remember what, I hope my answer is probably the same, which is I didn't see it in the theater, yeah. is that I remember we, Karen and I rented it and watched it on TV in uh, her apartment in Lafayette, probably, you know, whenever it came out on VHS. And I had two reactions. One is Karen is an Italian American, yeah. doesn't like mobster things. You know, she's like, this is not the only representation of people from my heritage. Right, right. So I remember that. But and then but I also just remember just being totally blown away by the kinetic, overwhelming, fast paced, hyper violent, really funny and really dark film. I mean, this was just like a real and, and I think like a fine wine, John, <laughs> Goodfellas is aged beautifully. Yes. Like it's so good. As you mentioned earlier, the 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 techniques that Scorsese is using here, this is a second renaissance of course Scorsese, right? Like he was in his prime in the 70s, young prime. This is like the older Jordan figuring out how to do the fallaway shot and just mm. controlling things. This is what it is here, uh, Goodfellas. This is the beginning of Scorsese in a whole second era of greatness as a director. And so you see the movements, the writing here is stellar and the performances. So 
they all still hold up. You know, the humor still holds up. The vibrancy of the film still holds up. The danger in the film still holds up. Um, and so that by the end of it, you're, uh, you, you've, you've experienced the movie yet again, you know? A little bit of pre-production. Obviously, this is based on the book Wise Guy by Nick Pelleggi. And uh, Pelleggi was a reporter and he was on the crime beat in New York. And so he knew these guys and he had relations with them. And it's not, it's so interesting just thinking about this world where if you were a cop, you knew these guys. Yeah. If you were running restaurants or bars or clubs or in the entertainment industry, you knew these guys. And Nick Pelleggi also interacted with these guys. And, and, and you know, that that strange sort of, you can like a person and they can like you, even though you know that they're a monster mm. is a weird place to be. Yeah. But it's that that leads him. He finds out about Henry Hill, who is on the witness protection program. And he's the perfect person because he isn't one of the big guys. He's a foot soldier. Yeah. But he was his life took him up to the big guys and he was around or involved when very, very big things happened. He wasn't necessarily important in them, but he moved in all those circles. And this is the thing that Pelleggi says about him. And uh, and having listened to the book, it's really true. Mm. Henry Hill's a talker. He's a good talker. And a lot of the things we hear in narration, that comes right out of Henry Hill's mouth in yeah. this book. Scorsese didn't think he wanted to do another mob movie. He <laughs> want to like, I, that's sort of the, I've been in that area already. I don't need to go back there. But he read the book while he was making Color of Money. And, and goes, oh, this is actually a way to explore this. And they have the classic story of Marty. And it's funny. We started calling him Marty in the when we did yeah. our deep dive into his life. And I'm just going to continue. So <laughs> Pelleggi and Pelleggi, of course, doesn't believe that that's Martin Scorsese. Thinks someone's playing a joke on him. Basically doesn't take the call twice until finally he gets convinced that that's really Scorsese on the phone. And he introduces himself. I, I'm Martin Scorsese. I make films. And Pelleggi's like, Oh, I know who you are. <laughs> First, and I want to have make this into a movie. And uh, at the same moment, a uh, producer, very famous producer, obviously, Erwin Winkler, mm. reads it and buys the rights. Yeah. So we have Pelleggi going to his agents saying, I want Martin Scorsese to do this film. And they're like, there are a ton of directors out there. You, you could get you could do better. They basically, his agent says, but finally, between when Erwin Winkler hears that Scorsese was interested and they had worked together before. Mm. They negotiated the rights, and that's how this comes about. Wow. Wow. And Scorsese goes, I want to write this script with Nick Pelleggi. Mm. And they start working together. And it's interesting. There was a story that came up when we did Mary Poppins. Now, you might think Mary Poppins and Goodfellas, <laughs> this moment is exactly the same, which is Walt Disney goes to the Sherman Brothers with the book Mary Poppins and says, you need to find the structure of this film. Go through and circle all the chapters that are ones that you think will make this movie. And they go off and they read the book and they circle the chapters and they bring it back in and they show their chapters that they've circled to Walt. And Walt pulls out his book and exactly the same chapters are circled. Mm. Exactly what happens with Martin Scorsese and Nick Pelleggi is that is Marty goes, let's go out and figure out what is the structure of the film? What are the things that should be in the film and should not? They separate, they come back together. Exactly the same list. <laughs> One of the interesting things, the person that brings the money in isn't Scorsese at this moment. It's mm. signing De Niro is what makes studios go, okay, we're going to do this. And actually, Nick Pelleggi grew up with De Niro. He, he, they, they were sort of friends. Mm. Uh, would you like to know who the studio wanted at first and fought hard for, for the roles of Henry Hill and Karen? Ooh. I know it wasn't Leota. So... I don't, uh, Pacino, I don't know who, or, or, or Andy Garcia, maybe 
Who was? It? Ooh, Andy Garcia would have been good. Right. Um, that's a that's a good choice. No, try Tom Cruise and <laughs> Madonna. Good God. <laughs> um, they also went after Val Kilmer. Yeah, who I can see more than I mean, Tom Cruise. We both love Tom Cruise. Yeah, we actor. do. We love him. And Alec Baldwin. Oh, Baldwin, I could totally see. Yeah. Especially at that time, because he hadn't transitioned to Third Rock Baldwin. So he was still like young, good looking. Young. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And part of the reason that this is happening is that Erwin Winkler is 100% against Ray Liotta. Does yeah. not want him to be in the movie. Uh, I will. I want to tell how Ray Liotta got this part in, Jeez, in, yeah. two, in two acts. It's a great legend. So act one, which I had never heard this story, is that Ray Liotta, and this is several years before Goodfellas, I don't know exactly when, mm. was at the Venice Film Festival, cool. standing with a buddy on a balcony and looks down in the lobby of wherever they are and sees Martin Scorsese walking across the floor, runs downstairs and hands Marty a VHS tape. <laughs> and that is just like, I'm a big admirer of yours. And Jesus the chutzpah of the actor, that kind of actor that's carrying their VHS tape yeah. with them at the Venice Film Festival to hand out to directors. That's what we did back then, I guess. <laughs> yes. Well, do you remember the guy, there was the guy, Dennis Woodruff, who drove around Los Angeles and had a yeah. car that said Dennis Woodruff that was painted all these bright colors that was yeah. always handing out his reel and his, his scripts. And Yeah, how did that work out? That's the thing, you know. Yeah. If, you've got to, if you've got to broadcast it that uh, loudly, it's because people aren't giving you the time of day and there's a reason for that so yes yeah. so i don't know if uh, scorsese ever looked at the vhs tape or remembered ray liotta ray liotta remembered scorsese the way scorsese first heard about him is robert de niro had watched something wild oh yeah good and film. said you got to check this guy out yeah and martin scorsese was like this is an interesting guy and then ray hears about goodfellas mm -hmm. and he starts petitioning he wants to be a part of it he's not even thinking about playing the lead mm. He's just thinking, I want to be part of this movie and I want to work with Scorsese. And Scorsese is thinking of him for a lead. And Erwin Winkler says, absolutely not. No way. And I will leave that story for now and we'll oh, return okay. to it at a later time. Okay. Um, so he was supposed to show they're working on the script together. It's going really well. And, and the script is, and you can see images of this in like the Blu-ray and you am sure you can see them online is so many details written in the margins by Martin Scorsese that say the name of a song, a camera move, a little sketch. I mean, this is such a well-planned out movie and they're getting ready to go. And then suddenly the movie that he wanted to make more than any other that had been canceled four years before suddenly has funding again. And he, he stops work Goodfellas entirely to go off to make Last Temptation of Christ. Right. One other person we should mention is Barbara Dafina, who is a started out as an intern working in the industry, worked her way up. To becoming a producer and married Martin Scorsese in 1985 mm. and divorced in 1991 right after Goodfellas and continued to work with him as a producer after the divorce on several movies. Yeah. I um, think he, this is where he gets together with Ileana Douglas, who has a very exactly small right. part in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get sort of to the end of all this, but mm. it sounds like she pretty much got screwed. Oh um, no. Okay. Yeah. They did uh, lots of rehearsals. Mm. Uh, De Niro was shooting Were No Angels with Sean Penn oh. <laughs> at this time. I've never seen that. Yeah, it's all right. It's it's an all right remake of a, of a much better film. Uh, them, him and uh, Sean and Demi Moore, I think, are in the movie. Yeah, I never saw it. And you know what? At this point, the odds of me seeing it 
are very slim. Probably very slim. So De Niro would come in on weekends during the shoot to rehearse, and he came in with notes and questions and things underlined. And I just, this is the note I wrote down at this point was just, I love pros. Yeah. Yeah. I love people that come in like ready to do the work. Yeah. One last thing before we jump into the film, Scorsese says there is no main character in the movie. <laughs> the lifestyle is the main character and Henry is our guide to meeting that character. I don't agree, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it's his film, so I'm not going to, counter the master but i don't agree i agree that henry is our guide to meeting to learning about the lifestyle sure. i 100 agree with that sure but yeah no i think there is a main character of this film yeah speaking of which would you like to jump in let's do it i had no idea that the titles here were by the great saul bass oh wow yeah i had no idea saul bass of course going back to vertigo and all those hitchcock movies and movies in the 60s and so mm -hmm. i didn't know that he was still around but then once I saw, once I knew that, I was like, oh, that actually makes perfect sense. Hmm. I love the sound of the driving sounds as those titles are flying by. And by the way, I think the racing sounds are really good. I caught it this time because, of course, you know, you watch the film like a cinephile now. We do, Steve. And I caught the racing sounds and, and, and they immediately hit me like, yeah, this is what we're about to watch, which is essentially a race car driver. These are race car drivers, right? Going fast. Uh, uh, living hard, uh, danger at every corner. And, you know, Henry Hill says in his book that he feared for his life every day of his life that he was in, in the mob. So this idea of having it go like this immediately in your mind, you're already like in this feeling of like, things are speeding up, things are fast, things are dangerous subconsciously. So I thought it was a brilliant way to bring that across right off the bat in the titles, uh, titles. I totally agree. And it's different. It's yeah. different. You know what I mean? It just feels like different for any title we ever saw. Yeah. We see the film is based on a true story. And then we see New York, 1970. We got Ray Liotta driving. De Niro's asleep. Pesci's in the back. And we hear a noise. And again, we're like right into a mystery. Like, what is the noise? What the hell is going on? They realize they got to pull over. They walk around the back. The red light from the taillights is just so powerful. I think. Yeah. They're demonic. They're going, they're, they're demonic people. And so the red light is danger, right? And I want to ask you, Steve, as a director, the framing of this opening shot where you have uh, Ray Liotta in the foreground, clearly in focus. You have uh, Pesci in the back, barely seen. You have De Niro asleep to his, uh, to Liotta's right. It's an interesting frame. It's a triangle frame. So you tell me, like, what is the logic in a frame like that as a director when you're looking at it? Because I thought it was a brilliant way to open the film and show Henry as the main focus with these two much more well-known actors. You make the audience immediately want to get to know who Ray Liotta is, you know? I was just watching a thing. It's a great question. I was just watching a thing, um, and they were talking about Spielberg and uh -huh. his ability to put the camera in the absolute right place that does all the storytelling. Oh, you know what it was? Because people are showing links to the, which I haven't watched the whole thing, but that Soderbergh desaturated Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. Created yeah. a black and white version and took all the, the dialogue out. Right. Um, and I watched some of it, and and it's totally amazing to see that movie in black and white. Mm -hmm. um, but the point that was being made, as someone was talking about, is, is Spielberg's ability to put the camera in the right place. That's an interesting shot that gives you all the storytelling. And I totally think that's what's going on here, mm -hmm. is that uh, Henry Hill, Ray Liotta, is going to drive us through this movie. He is uh, going to be our guide. Good point. Jimmy is so much more powerful than the other guys that he can be asleep. Mm -hmm. And 
Tommy is the irritant in the back, you know, the dangerous person that's behind us that we can't quite trust, you know? So I think the framing does all that, you know? By the way, talking about Spielberg was totally me stalling in order to figure out an answer to your question. (laughs) (laughs) Magician, stop showing your tricks. Come on. (laughs) And so we're outside and the camera pushes in on them. It pushes in on the trunk. It goes to Pesci, who pulls out this big freaking knife, then pans to Ray Liotta, who pulls out his keys and goes to open the trunk. And I just like, we're 30 seconds, 40 seconds into this movie, and the level of dread and yeah. what the hell is going on, yeah. super high. We open up the trunk, and there is this just disgusting shot of Billy Bats in the back of the trunk, yeah. just looking... Like you, I think it's because you can't quite see exactly what's happened to him that makes it so upsetting, but it is really upsetting. Yeah, Frank Vincent, the great Frank Vincent, who's also kind of an unsung hero in a lot of these Scorsese films. Great, per, you know, great small performance in the movie. And just right off the bat, just like you're introduced to three these three guys, this is the moment where everything changes, yet we don't know that yet in the movie. We're just seeing this as these guys killing this dude again after they thought they'd killed him the first time. And this guy is just reflexively fighting for his life, you know, and saying, no, 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 repeatedly over and over again, because he's so just out of it, that it's all he can say in that moment. Um, And seeing the reaction from Tommy, and then the reaction from Jimmy, and you look at Henry, Henry is like, just shocked about all of this. He's not angry. He's not the one wanting to participate. So again, just like you told us, just like you said about the uh, opening shot, here we get an immediate um, exposure to the characters of all three of these guys by how they react to this body in distress in the trunk that they themselves put in the trunk. Uh, but, uh, you know, their reaction lets you know what they think about it and who they are as people. Well, and this is one of the first things about me rethinking Henry Hill's relationship mm. with these other two guys mm. is, and we'll see it, well, of course, when we get to the actual murder, but yeah. He wasn't part of the murder. He nope. just happened to be there. And now he happens to be here, Have in, and he doesn't have a choice but to participate. But he is not a willing participant in this. No. This is not his choice at all. Exactly. By the way, the real Henry Hill says he, or he's passed away now, but said he had nightmares about this moment for the rest of his life. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? You know, like I said, everything changed here. No, he's still alive. No, fuck And they stab him and shoot him, and it's super, super brutal. And then Henry walks up to the trunk, and we hear the lines. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. The camera pushes in fast into that freeze frame, and Rags to Riches by Tony Bennett hits. I know I'd go from Rags to Riches. It's one of the great openings of movies, period. 100%. 100%. Top 10 greatest openings in any movie ever. Because like we said, immediately you understand who these three characters are. You're immediately shocked into understanding what kind of movie this is going to be. And boom, that beginning with such a great song from Tony Bennett, who of course had his own connections sure. uh, during that time. I think it's just a great start. And, and it doesn't allow you to to like be in this moment of dread because you've got a song like this that takes you right into you know, the rest of the film here. And the idea of the theme of the song, which is rags to riches, which is like achieving your dreams. And so you have Ray Liotta saying, uh, I want, uh, as far as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. So in a way it's like kind of the, the uglier side of the dream, someone who's wanting to be something 
that is violent and and um, and kills and uh, and hurts people. Uh, that's his dream. So you know the song doesn't specify which dream, but it is a dream itself. So you see that from Henry and Ray Liotta's uh, voiceover. You know what it reminds me of, and I and I've never heard Tarantino say this, mm. but it's the opening of Pulp Fiction, which is that what's her name stands up and says. <laughs> because it's thrilling yeah the way the music comes in is so we've seen this brutal total brutality just disgusting thing and then and this is the the seduction of goodfellas yeah is that then we're gonna have fun yeah. you know like it is just a thrilling exciting moment yep uh, one thing I never knew, and I just love this. So my love for Scorsese has just gone up and up and up the more I've researched him because he's the kind of filmmaker in terms of the way he he works with people yeah. and his moral sense, strangely enough, is th that I like. And one of the things I just found out, he never has taken the a film by Martin Scorsese credit. Oh, wow. He says directed by Martin Scorsese, right. but it doesn't say a film by. Yeah. And what I love about that is that because he thinks it's a collaborative effort. Yeah. You know, which is my my company's team effort films. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. is that my thing says this was a team effort film? Yeah. You know, like I just love I just love that. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. We go to a close-up of an eye, and we're going to meet now young Henry Hill, which is played by Christopher Cerrone. And he says, To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. That is a that is a hell of a line. <laughs> and we see him just looking out the window at the world on his street. And you know what I thought about was something we talked about when we talked about Scorsese's life is who was he as a kid? He was a kid who looked out the window, right. you know, because he had terrible asthma and he wasn't participating. And then I looked up and I was like, I wonder how old Henry Hill is. Henry Hill is was born six months after Martin Scorsese. They're basically wow. the exact same age. Wow. Even before I first wandered into the cab stand for an after-school job, I knew I wanted to be a part of them. 
It was there that I knew that I belonged. To me, it meant being somebody in a neighborhood that was full of nobodies. Yeah, you know, and this is where I think, and I'm going to challenge some of our listeners and our viewers in this moment, because this is glorified gangster stuff, right? We hear a young, we hear Ray Liotta, but we see a younger version of the Ray Liotta character there, and it's a perfect casting. That kid is charming, good-looking, wide-eyed, innocent-looking, got a great smile, seems like a, a kid you'd love to know. Uh, so immediately, you like Henry Hill, right? This is all smart casting. You immediately, Ray Liotta at the beginning, not taking part in the murder, and then boom, we see this young kid with blue eyes and just uh, has a great smile in all of that. But the way he's talking about the life of being a gangster, of how much he wants it, people may not want to hear this, but this is what has been happening in inner cities for numerous decades, yeah. that people look at gangs in inner cities the same way that you would say Italians looked at or people who lived in the Italian neighborhoods looked at the mob and wanting to be part of the mob. Yet somehow we revere the mob in a different way than we, re we revere gangs or, uh, or profile gangs, yet both of them are involved in crime. Both of them kill. Both of them do terrible things. Both of them hurt women. There's no difference. It's just that we have glorified the mob to have this kind of nobility, for lack of a better term, and have looked down on um, on gangs and and uh, even cartels to an extension. And I think that comes from, to me, in my opinion, it comes from a racist point of view. And so we see that there's a difference here, right? And and I ask people who are listening or watching, before you get mad and scoff at another Roka take, actually take a moment and look at that and see, like, why do I enjoy these gangster films? But when I watch films about uh, gangs in South Central or whatever, or Boys in the Hood, that really unsettles me because they're literally the same thing, you know? And so this is a thing to consider. And you can even make extension with Yakuza. You know, I'm, I'm getting into Tokyo Vice, the series on HBO, and I'm going to get that book from Edelstein, which is essentially him being a part of the Yakuza for a while as a reporter. And I want to read in depth what he uh, was able to experience. And the same things are going on with the Yakuza that were going on with the mob that are going on with gangs this kind of approach. So to me, they're all similar. They just happen to be different ethnicities or different uh, locations in the, in the uh, economic strata. You know, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great point. And I, they're, they're exactly the same. Of course they're yeah. the same. Yeah. You know, they, they're, they're committing crimes They're and people are scared to turn on them because of what will happen. They yes. run neighborhoods. They, you know, they, they corrupt cops. It's all the same stuff, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. the, the, the customs might be different right? and the names might be different, but the stuff is totally the same. And yeah. I think too, the, the, and this is the one that really struck me is that part of this I think comes from, you see the system isn't fair, mm -hmm. you know, like you see your dad or whoever it is working two jobs and yes. never getting ahead and never getting anywhere. And then you look out the window at these guys who are getting somewhere. They weren't like anybody else. I mean, they did whatever they wanted. They double parked in front of a hydrant and nobody ever gave them a ticket. In the summer when they played cards all night, nobody ever called the cops. And you look at that and you compare that to what he calls, you know, the nobody losers. Yeah. And you go, oh, the, those nobody losers will never, the only way to get ahead is by following these guys. They know what the deal is. But the but the problem with it is, is that by skipping all these steps and becoming these criminals, yeah. they become part of the system that is stealing from the nobody schmucks who are trying to get ahead. Exactly. Just whether just like the government is or your bosses and the people that are, you know, like the elite and all those, well, the, the mob is just another group of people that are pulling money off the top and keeping other people down. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
I love the moment when this big fancy car pulls in, we see the shoe come out and the detail that the car rises up on its shocks. <laughs> and that is right out of the book. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and it was funny reading the book. There are things that are not in the movie that are in the book, obviously, because yeah. it's shorter, but the, the movie really, really follows the book. Yeah. Really closely. And then we meet Tutty uh, Cicero, who's uh, Frank DeLeo. Uh, and he's our first real contact, and he's the guy who re- runs the cab stand in the pizzeria um, for his buddy, Polly. And there we see Polly for the first time, Paul Sorvino. Yeah. So he read the script and went, man, there's not really much of a part here. I mean, it's not the guy. I don't have a lot of lines, but he really, really wanted to work with Scorsese. Yeah. So he he accepts the part, and that's like many months before they actually went to shoot it. And according to Paul Sorvino, he got real scared. He wow. went, I don't think I have this guy in me. Oh. And it's so funny because my first real, no- I mean, my first knowledge of Paul Servino is actually from Oh God, but I didn't yeah. really become aware of him. When I really became aware of him is Goodfellas. So in mm-hmm. my mind, this is the first thing I think of him is. But if you hear him talk, he describes himself as a poet and a singer and a sculptor. Yeah. He's an artsy fartsy guy. Yes. He's like the farthest thing from a gangster. And he says he's a big softy. And he says he had read The Godfather and loved it. And, he, and before the movie had been announced, before any casting, he says he knew the only human on the planet that could play Don Corleone is Marlon Brando because he's the only person who could have that level of power in silence. Mm. And he went, I don't have that. <laughs> so he got so for like months, he was sitting there going, how can I get out of this? Like, maybe I could hurt my, you know, <laughs> you know, twist an ankle or something could happen and I can get out of it. And then this, he's a very arty sort of person. Yeah. And he just describes this one moment. He's getting ready to leave the house and he looks in the mirror and he sees this look in his own eye mm. that was scary. And he went, that's it. And once he had that, he had the part. Reminds me of the Tim Roth monologue in uh, Reservoir Dogs when he finally mm. gets that right looking in the mirror Yep. Fucking do this and then walks out. Yeah. And he is, he holds, he does exactly what he says. He holds so much power in his silence. So great, dude. Such a great performance in this film. Yeah. Paulie might have moved slow, but it was only because Paulie didn't have to move for anybody. And mom was okay with him having the job when he found out that Paul Cicero's family came from the same part of Sicily that her family was from. Yeah. Because Henry Hill is half Irish, half Italian. I was the luckiest kid in the world. I could go anywhere. I could do anything. I knew everybody and everybody knew me. The thing I think that's really impressive about this young actor playing Henry Hill mm. is you can kind of see both his his competence yeah. and his and that he's got steel in him. Yes. You know, and you could see that the mobsters recognize that and continue to give him more uh, responsibilities. Yeah. Apparently he had to have two phone books to sit on in order to drive a Cadillac when Henry Hill first started parking cars at the cab stand. Every day I was learning to score. A dollar here, a dollar there. I was living in a fantasy. It's a fascinating film to watch in tandem with A Bronx Tale, the De Niro-directed film that he did, because a lot of the stuff that Henry is talking about here the kid says to De Niro when he's having this these um, idealistic fantasies about Chaz Palminteri's character, right? And De Niro is kind of uh, – it's a fascinating thing because De Niro plays Jimmy so well in this movie. And when he plays the father character in Bronx Tale, he's almost like 
like what Karen uh, has said, like she, he's countering it's going, no, there are plenty of us hardworking Italian people who didn't get sucked into this mob, who didn't take the easy way out. And we're not suckers. You know, we're not because I think the kid says that to him at some point in the movie, like the working man's a sucker. And he's like, we're not suckers. We get up every day, have him get up every day and go to work and deal with all the bullshit and come home and try to put food on the table. Well, he takes the easy way out, you know, and he he rules by fear. I'm trying to I'm trying to teach you through love. And so it's a great counter to what you're watching here in the movie because, of course, you're caught up in this young kid, and the young kid would idealize this, right? He's like he said, I, they took care of me. They were. He's about to say, like, at one point, my, the kids took they took my uh, my mother's groceries uh, to her house out of respect, you know. And so he's feeling that. And as a young person, when you're coming from a working class family, sometimes it can be hard to feel like you matter. It can be hard to feel like you have any respect. Certainly that was my experience growing up. We barely had any money when I was growing up. We didn't have a car for the first two years uh, that we lived in, in this country. And I know it was really hard. And so I've always fought for respect or attention or, or my due. And so when I see that happening and the way he's, he's talking about it, I can understand it just like I can understand sometimes kids in, in poor areas in the inner cities get involved in gangs because they see the possibility of having status or being important, and that's a human thing. You know, it's a human desire to feel important, to feel wanted, loved, respected. It's part of it. You know, you just don't see the other side of it at that time when you're young. Well, and I would say, in general, we don't get to pick the things that society deems as status worthy. Yeah, yeah. we're not in charge of that. Yeah. And so, if society says having the nice car, the nice clothes, or being the the guy who could beat someone up gives you status, yeah then that's where your status comes from. You yeah, know. Let me tell you something. If there was a bunch of stock traders running gangs in inner cities, they, you'd be a bunch of you know poor kids becoming stock traders. It's just about what you're around sometimes. doesn't mean everybody falls into it, but you can understand why people do, especially at young ages, where they're easily influenced. You know, And I wish more people understood that and, and accepted that and, and, and saw things that happen in places like that through a little bit more of an understanding prism, you know? Well, as a nerd who grew up in the you know seventies, eighties, nineties, nerds were at the bottom of the barrel status-wise. Yeah. Good point. That ain't true anymore no. because nerds became some of the most powerful people in the world, and suddenly that was you did get status. Um, <laughs> well, and the other thing I would say is like that. I, I'm really glad you brought up the idea of those people working stiffs are suckers. Yeah, their only reason they're suckers is because these other people are cheating. Yes, of course, hundred you know? percent. Yes. I mean, it's just like, like you imagine you're playing a game, you know, you're playing Monopoly with someone and someone keeps stealing money out of the bank and you go like, well, you should be stealing money too. You're just a sucker. And it's like, no, I'm playing the game. You're cheating. That doesn't, you know, it's your fault, not my fault. That's why I hate um, that term. If you're not cheating, you're not winning and uh, you're not winning or you're not playing. And it drives me nuts. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly understand if you're playing a sport at a high level hmm. and you can get a little hold in without the ref seeing it, you're going to do that because that's the game. I totally get that. Yeah. But there are levels of cheating that are not acceptable, you know? hundred percent. Anyway, we're, we're back at the apartment. Dad is pissed off. He was pissed that he made such lousy money. He was pissed that my kid brother, Michael, was in a wheelchair. He was pissed that there were seven of us living in such a tiny house. And as we hear this, dad is advancing on him yeah. and is asking about school. It's a letter from school. It says you haven't been there in months. And then he pulls out that belt and starts beating on him. In months! <laughs> and then we get to another freeze frame. And we're going to have a lot of these freeze frames in the film. This is PTSD for me, Steve, because I did this. And I, oh, wow. I think I've told this on the 
show before. Maybe I've told on another show that I've hosted, but like, I remember when I was not doing well in a certain semester in high school and I took, and I, I am so sh- ashamed of this. I took advantage of my parents being immigrants and lied to them that the school doesn't send the report cards, mm. you know, in the same way. Cause I was scared because my father had no problem beating me if I had bad grades because it was from a place of wanting me to be successful, not from a place of hate. It was from a place of love. If people can understand that back then. And when, and so eventually my parent, my dad and mom went to the school and got the report cards and got that I'd been hiding the bad grades from them. And my father, um, I remember I, I came home from playing football, football and I came home and I was in the living room and my dad waited till we had dinner. Like it was planned out and he waited till we had dinner. And then while I was sitting downstairs watching, um, the shows thinking my life was just going on and I could somehow keep fooling them. He came downstairs, turned off the TV, in in with one light on, laid the report cards out on the table, and of course, I immediately start crying and apologizing. And he says, and he just grabbed me by the arm, took the belt off, and just started whipping me around a lamp. And my mom had to come down and stop him. And he just kept saying, "How could you insult me like this? How could you insult me like this? You, my own son, taking advantage of me being an immigrant or not speaking the language." you and that's what hurt me it wasn't oh yeah the lying it wasn't like that i did bad grades it was that my father felt insulted and that i'd played him for a fool and so you know those are the things you're scared things you are scared of and you do so when i'm seeing him beat henry although it looks bad you can understand his father is beating him because his father doesn't want him to go down this path because he knows where this path's going to lead and he loves his son so although it's a scary thing to witness fathers from back then did that kind of stuff out of a place of love, you know? So uh, it has PTSD for me every time I watch that scene, you know? It's funny. It's not funny. Ha ha. I'm not laughing, laughing at your experience, (laughs) but, but the, the thing that you took from it is the opposite of what Henry takes from this because you, you, because you heard you, you, you looked past the physical violence um, to hear the actual message from your dad and felt it deeply, you know, Whereas Henry goes, he was mostly pissed because I hung around the cab stand. He knew what went on at that cab stand. And every once in a while, I'd have to take a beating. But by then, I didn't care. The way I saw it, everybody takes a beating sometime. Right. And this is what you talked about earlier, that the kid has steel, you know? Oh, there's steel. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well, and it's like, he's just rejected his whole dad. He's rejected his whole dad. I don't even have to finish go any further in that sentence. We come back, we're back at the cab stand, he's talking to Tuddy, his face is all bruised, and he's trying to get out of deliveries because of what his dad did. Yeah. And his nice mob friends are going to solve the problem for him. (laughs) Because we go out, we're looking at these guys, Henry, they ask if that's him, Henry goes, no, points to someone else, mailman, they grab the mailman, they throw his head into a pizza oven. We also get a character from The Sopranos that we see in the background. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is Tony Sirico is there. Yeah. Polly Walnuts. Any letter from that school to that kid's house comes directly here. You understand? Yeah. If another letter from that school goes to that kid's house, in the fucking oven, you're going to go ahead first. And I love the voice over here where he says, like, no other letters came to the house so much so that the mom had to go and complain with the post office. So what I, <laughs> I try to figure out, like, 
I don't know how I feel now at this uh, moment. What is it that you feel as you uh, watch them do this? You know what? <laughs> I always love this scene because, look, I feel bad for the mailman for sure, but it isn't played in a brutal way for the mailman, although his head does go in an oven. It goes in an oven. Uh, it's fair. It just, the guy is so uh, just shocked. I love the way that they wait for him. And then when they grab him, he's like, hey, hey. And then they take him in there, and then he tells him. And Tuddy is so chill that it doesn't have the same kind of menace as maybe if it was Tommy, I think I would have been more scared, but Tuddy seems kind of harmless in a way. So he's just telling the guy, no letters. If it does, then your head goes in the oven and that's that. And the scene ends on the freeze frame and and Henry's voice voice over there. So it doesn't, it has menace, but it doesn't have quite the real, like a Tommy menace that it would have if it was him. So I think it's a funny scene for me personally. And, I don't know. I might not have minded that if I was a kid, you know? <laughs> of course. I mean, you just got beat up. Well, this is, so I think one of Scorsese's gifts is, how do I put it? His, one of his gifts is to say to you, you are not who you think you are. Mm. Like that's what he's saying to the audience because he does make us enjoy things yeah. yep. that we yep. should not enjoy. 100%. And the reason that we can enjoy things that we should not enjoy is that we are in denial about who we as humans actually are some of the time. Right. You know, because this is, it, it's thrilling and it's fun. And if you, st- and, and this is all of Goodfellas really, is like yeah. you take a little step back and you're like, oh my God, this is a horrible assault. I mean, this poor mailman is going to walk around for essentially the rest of his life. Yeah. Being scared that by doing his job, he's going to get killed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a, it, what's happening is horrible, but the way it's happening and as we're seeing it through Henry Hill's eyes, thrilling. Right. You know? and, and this is where he's effective, as opposed to what we see some people defending Killers of the Flower Moon, saying that Scorsese was turning the camera on us or turning like it's 2024. We've seen many, many films that have already turned the camera on us and on and on and on what white people did in, to Native Americans. We didn't need another film who told that told us that. And so um, I thought he was much more effective doing it in movies like this. Than he was in Killers of the Flower Moon, using that same technique, trying to turn the camera back around on us to look at ourselves, you know, because we've already kind of had that reckoning in a in a more mainstream kind of way already for the last few years. So, I thought this in nineteen in 1990 was kind of groundbreaking to see that, which is what he'd been doing in a number of his movies, Taxi Driver, other films, yeah, you know, kind of deceptively and subtly turning the camera back around on us for us to look at ourselves, you know. The big difference, and this is, I know I already said this when we did our deep dive on Scorsese, is that we're never going to see this mailman again. We don't care about him. We're only caring about this moment and how this moment affects Henry. We spend the whole movie with Lily Roundtree and all those people around. So like you can't, you can't be thrilled with DiCaprio and De Niro's behavior. It can't be fun because I'm watching these poor people. You know, that's not what happens at Goodfellas. How can I go back to school after that and pledge allegiance to the flag and sit through good government bullshit? That is indoctrination. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. Well, and it's funny, like as a parent, there's so many things that I watch my kid do that are, he is making the choice to get the thing that he thinks he wants, which is largely screen time, eat things that are unhealthy, not do work, homework, exercise, clean his room, all the things he doesn't want to do. And so he's making all these choices. He doesn't know the choices that he's made. He doesn't quite understand what he's doing. He's just going towards what feels good and avoiding what feels bad. That's all Henry's doing. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go to school. Doesn't feel good working with these guys, making this money. This does feel good. So I'd go that way. It's like Pinocchio, right? Like Pinocchio goes off 
Like I could go to school and be a good boy, but no, I'm going to go off with, um, I forget the nickname for John's character and, and what they do and go off into that park. And then of course I end up seeing these guys, these boys turn into donkeys. So like, it's almost parallel to Pinocchio in a way that situation, you know, boy, a, I'm certain this is the first Pinocchio Goodfellas <laughs> metaphor and B up to a certain point that actually works perfectly. Yeah. That, that metaphor of how of of the choices that Henry makes. Hmm. We find out that Polly hates phones. I love this detail. You used to get all his calls secondhand, then you'd have to call the people back from an outside phone. There were guys, that's all they did all day long was take care of Polly's phone calls. It's like um, in Godfather 2 where he said, yeah, there are a lot of buffers. <laughs> There's a lot of buffers. Yeah, yes, there are buffers, yeah. By the way, one of the things, and I, I know we talked about it uh, when we talked about Scorsese in general, but mm. one of the things he's the best on is making exposition and understanding a whole bunch of details about a world totally exciting and dramatic. And it's the camera. It's the way the voiceover is written. It's the music he's using. It's all the performances. It's so good. Dude, totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. I love this description, by the way. For a guy who moved all day long, Polly didn't talk to six people. If there was a union problem or, say, a beef in the numbers, then only the top guys can meet with Paulie to discuss the problem. Everything was one-on-one. Paulie hated conferences. And we see people talking to Paul Sorvino, yeah. and he's doing almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Which, as an actor, when I, I so what, what I'm saying is that in terms of movement, in terms of facial expression, it seems like he's doing nothing. As an actor, is that how it feels? What does that feel like to you when you have to play that kind of part? Oh, uh, Every instinct within yourself is wanting to take part, but you have to trust the director that he knows what he's doing and that, and maybe even taking a look at a daily so you understand. So watching Sorvino do what he's doing um, is incredible because some actors don't understand how much power they have on screen, not saying a word. Uh, and I bring this up because I recently rewatched uh, The Big Country again, which is quietly becoming one of my favorite Westerns with Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston and Burl Ives. The last 15 minutes of the movie, through all the finale, through all the end shot with him and I think it's Merle Oberon, he doesn't say a word, Gregory Peck. Not a fucking word. Wow. It is all Burl Ives, the guy who plays the rival uh, uh, gang uh, leader, uh, Charlton Heston. But Gregory Peck doesn't say a word. And when he rolls out in that final scene with him and, and the the actress there, doesn't say a word. But it's all, you can see what he's thinking. You can tell what he's trying to say. And so you're caught up in it because his screen presence is so strong as Gregory Peck that you the audience goes along with him. And I think that's what Servino does here. Like when he doesn't talk, it makes him even more interesting and it makes him a mystery. So we as the audience are just naturally gravitating to it and Sorvino does a wonderful job just staying within himself play and those like those half open eyes that he does at certain moments that is just showing you like this is a guy you do not want to fuck with man yeah yeah I, I think I would I would never say that anything really is equal to Brando in the Godfather mm. but he had he he managed to find that power you yeah. know yeah um and what we hear was that he takes tribute that every he gets a piece of every single operation. And all they got from Paulie was protection from other guys looking to rip them off. And that's what it's all about. That's what the FBI could never understand. That what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. 
what do you think of it? Is that true? Uh, I think uh, at the be- at the beginning there was a piece of that that was true because remember they were bringing this from Italy. Like this is how it was in Italy and it still is. I imagine in certain sections of Italy this is still the way it's done, right? But when they were there's a, there was a sense of feeling that this is how things were done, and there was this feeling of like this is traditions of the old country, and we're going to protect you because the police, right, as we saw in Gangs in New York, another film for Martin Scorsese, whoever the new immigrant people are, you know, whether they're Italian or uh, Irish or whoever is coming over on the boat, they're immediately the lowest class citizens. The police don't care about them. You can abuse them, but beat them, rob them, rape them, kill them. The police is not going to care about it because they're paid off by the other group that has already become in as as moved up into power. So you can use that excuse. And we saw that in The Godfather, right? At the beginning, when he's delivering that monologue, how the cops didn't help him when his daughter was uh, uh, beaten uh, almost to death. And so he comes to The Godfather. So there is that feeling like that's the way things were done. You know, and again, I'm uh, I'm in this Yakuza, reading this Yakuza stuff. That's also how this guy who was the bodyguard for Adelstein, after he wrote Tokyo Vice, talks about the Yakuza because he just wrote the guy's biography. That was this deal. You don't have to pay me. Write my story so my children will understand why I became a member of the Yakuza. The guy says that. When we first started out, it was about protecting the small businesses. The police wouldn't help them. We felt we were doing something great for the community. It just changed in the 70s and 80s when drugs and all this stuff got involved. It completely changed. But when we first started out, it was a different approach. There was a code. And so I think the way it's being presented is accurate to what they thought it was back in the 50s and 60s um, before it changed in the 70s and 80s. So the more I look at Goodfellas, mm. the less honor I found. Mm. That's you know, mm. like, and, and I know, you know, and obviously Scorsese is fascinated with codes of honor from the Catholic priest and from the gangster and from all sorts of other places that we look of what is and isn't right. And that's sort of what he looks into. And they talk a lot about codes of honor, Mm -hmm. but like the scene, which I totally agree with the scene at the beginning of the Godfather is this horrible thing has happened to me. I, nobody can help me. Will you help me? Yeah. And then we have the great line, the Godfather, like, you know, we're not murders, no matter what this undertaker thinks, you know, is like that expresses some sort of level of moral code and restraint. right? Right. There's nothing like that in Goodfellas. Like there, there, and the fact is, is the the only people that we see that people need protection from is them. Yeah, exactly. Yes, hundred percent. Right. So, so like it's and whether or not, it, but at this moment for young Henry Hill, his status is just going up and up in the community. Yeah, you know, people are carrying his mom's groceries home. The baker gives him free bread. He doesn't have to wait in any lines. And as we're hearing that this is happening. We're seeing young Henry Hill uh, commit arson and blow up all these cars. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, was a rival cab stand that had opened up in the neighborhood from some hardworking immigrant who was just trying to get ahead in the U.S. Yeah. And they gave him a few warnings. You can't operate near our cab stand. And he didn't listen. And they burned down his whole operation. Yeah. So you see that, right? As you said, you don't see these moments of nobility that Henry is talking about. And I wonder when you do the when you do voiceovers like this, it is Henry Hill telling you the story, but we're seeing the him as a fifteen year old or fourteen year old, whatever age he is when we're seeing these sequences. So, do you think that's the fourteen and fifteen year old saying that, or is that Henry Hill saying it in retrospect, like in his forties? What do you think when you hear a voiceover like that and you're seeing a kid kind of um, dialing into this life? 
what a, first of all, what a great question. Because, because first of all, it's a directing question. Mm -hmm. Like that's like, if I was talking to an actor, I would be, that's a question I would be thinking about. Mm. I also go one, one thing, just so you know, when they did the voiceover, Martin Scorsese, and they did it right after they'd shot, mm. he had someone sit down in a chair directly across from Ray Liotta and said, you need to tell him this story, which I think oh, wow. is a great bit of direction. Yeah. Um, and, and what I think this is what my my real feeling is, and part of it comes from reading the book, and part of it comes from learning more things about Henry Hill after. Mm -hmm. He might be pretending that he doesn't still feel this way yeah. in his 40s, but he still feels this way. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. my feeling. What's your feeling? Yeah, I think so, too. I think he um, – because uh, the book, you again, if it's from the book, the book is trying to make you care about this person. Yeah. How do you make uh, someone care about the person? You have to show him as a multi-dimensional person, and you have to have him – like convey what I was thinking, the um, uh, uh, idealistic glorification of this life that I was seeing it as, so you can have sympathy. Why? Because we've all been there as a young person in our teens and idolized somebody who was more successful than us, whether it's you know someone like Taylor Swift now or a great actor, a great politician, a great businessman, you know, whatever your feelings are, there are quite a lot of people who get idolized by other people who want to be in the positions they're in. Uh, down the road. And so our whole country is built on um, idol worship, to be honest with you, whether it's celebrities or politicians or business people or technology people, it is built on idolatry. And so you see this here in the same um, way that he's talking about it. So it's a universal feeling. So he doesn't feel like he's a bad person because you connect to it impulsively, uh, having been through it yourself. Well, and that I, that idolatry, I think, is based on the symbols of status that we have come to believe in that we've been, you know, yes. enculturated to like that. It's that, you know, you have those things. Well, then I would idolize you mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. as opposed to your internal qualities, which, which is funny. We did Wolf of wall street six months ago. Yeah. I read the Jordan Belfort book. I hate him. You know, like it was very obvious that I really disliked that guy when we did that podcast. Yes. And just to put my bias on or really to expose the thing that I was saying about Scorsese before of mm. you are not who you think you are. I like Henry Hill better than Jordan Belfort and oh. having read both of those two books. Yeah. Now I, you know, to put on the moral scales, what is a greater crime swindling, swindling hundreds of millions of dollars from people or being a thug who actually was involved in killing and beating up people. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know how to do that. But but I do know that the that I shouldn't be more attracted to Henry Hill than I am to Jordan Belfort. I should equally dislike them both. Part of it, though, by the way, is the Jordan Belfort book is written maybe with a ghostwriter totally from him. Yeah. Whereas Wise Guy is written by a reporter who is checking facts and using quotes from Henry Hill. Right. You know, and so it, do, it doesn't quite have that level of self-aggrandizement. And a reporter knows you've got to make the main character of your book interesting, yeah. right? And likable to a degree so that people will keep reading it. So, yeah. Cut to, hi, mom. The door opens and we see young Henry Hill in this beautiful double-breasted tan suit, pink tie, slicked hair. Look at my shoes. Aren't they great? My God. You look like a gangster. <laughs> and Scorsese might be the best person who cuts out of contrast who just does these hard cuts that throws you into a different world. Because right from that moment where we are laughing, we cut to a guy running down the street, his arm bleeding, screaming, they shot me, as he runs up to Henry the Capstone. You look like a gangster. They shot me out! Oh, they shot me! 
Tutty is upset that Henry used too many uh, aprons to sop up all the blood. Hey, you, you used eight aprons on that guy. I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, we got to toughen this kid up. Uh, by the way, in Henry Hill's description of this moment, the hand was hit up close by a shotgun. Oof. And was just shredded. There was like there, you know, he. It was it was more brutal than this looked, and this looks pretty brutal. Yeah, but again, this is a great scene to work on you subconsciously to like Henry, right? Because his impulse yet again in this moment is not to, because you hear Tuddy say in the background, "Close the door, close the door." It is not to close the door and not help this guy. It is yeah. to help this guy and to use eight aprons, which I imagine was not cheap back then to uh, help this guy. This isn't eight paper towels or eight regular towels, aprons, which were pretty expensive, I imagine, back then. So, you know, uh, he was doing this because he has a good, what you would think, a good moral compass within him, even though he's about to go in or he is in um, the mob. So it's just an interesting moment to make you care about this guy a little bit more. So Scorsese definitely putting these scenes in that are going to make him look uh, more attractive to the audience as the show, as the story goes along is really smart, man. I'll tell you right now, I'm, I, I'm a five apron max guy. <laughs> like that's, if you need a sixth apron, you're, you're on your own. As far as I'm concerned, uh, we have speedo by the Cadillacs and yeah, I'm not going to tell you every single song that hits in this movie, but Jesus. so many good ones and they just and he writes it down in the script and often he'll play that song on the set because yeah. he's 100 sure of what he's going to use and man you know i i know we said it when we did tarantino those are the two needle drop masters mm-hmm. and, I, and i think scorsese is the master and Tar- tarantino is second for me yeah yeah um and we see him making sandwiches while the guys play poker and you know what thought i had here is i went oh henry hill at this age is spider yes yes Absolutely. He's doing exactly the same job. He's bringing drinks. He's making sandwiches. And as we're moving through all these wise guys, we hear. It was a glorious time. The wise guys were all over the place. It was when I met the world. It was when I first met Jimmy Conway. Jimmy Conway is based on Jimmy Burke and uh, was a really big criminal. And they changed the names of him. They changed Paul Cicero because these people were coming after them. Not violently, but for money. <laughs> and they're yeah. just like, we just don't want to pay these people. Yeah. Man, De Niro's entrance in that blue suit, spreading money around, coming in out of the shadows, just charisma just pouring off of him. People talk about like, oh, what are the great, uh, you know, when Matt and I were doing the top 10 for so long. People always asked us to do the top 10 greatest character intros ever. And this is one of those ones that's in the contention for being in the top 10, because as you said, we already know De Niro, right? And again, this is a De Niro who is also a little bit older, you know, although they say he's 29 or 30 in the movie, doesn't look 29 or 30 in the movie, Uh, but like he's a little older De Niro here, but the way he comes in and the, just the energy and the aura and the swagger he has coming in and putting money in everybody's pocket there, you immediately like this guy and you understand why. Um, Henry fell under his spell, right? Like you got to see why this guy is so cool and interesting that you would believe that a guy, a young kid like Henry would find this reverence for this guy. Uh, and it is because the smooth and confident and cocky approach 
to the world that this guy has and dropping all that money in everybody's thing makes him look like, you know, like a rich guy. And we don't know, or like a guy who takes care of people, right? But we don't know how he got that money, which is probably killing people, beating people up and whatever. But to the, but when you're in that room, you're just seeing this guy as, wow, he really cares about people. He gives people money. He's such a great tipper, blah, blah, blah. But you don't know how he got his money. So, yeah. well, we know it wasn't legal. Yeah, right. Fair point. <laughs> he didn't, right. he didn't exactly. win the lottery and he didn't invest it in the <laughs> stock market and he doesn't have a job. So, so he did it by, he got the money for committing crimes. And this is what's so weird. I, I, you know, I, I love restaurants. So I read lots of books about how restaurants worked and they mm. talk about when the mobsters came in. And that was the best because the mobsters spent all the money. Talk about entertainers and the mobsters always spending tons of money. And what's so fucked up about it? Is you wanted to be around them because you know going if you're 1968 and you go home with a 200 dollar tip yeah that's huge huge yeah. amounts of money too but Very the true. reason that they have that money is they're stealing it from schlubs like you so so it, it would it, everything would be better if they weren't spreading all this money around and I also go and this I know I know this came up when we talked about Goodfellas the first time mm-hmm. the way these morons spend money is so stupid yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, for me. Because it's like you're now you're just gonna have to commit more crimes and you're gonna get caught. Like they actually could live very if if they lived like uh, not Meyer Lansky but whatever uh, the character in Godfather Two lives. Oh yeah, um, Hyman Roth. Hyman Roth live in a nice small house. You could have millions. You you you're safe. You know, like that. That's the way to you know. Like I don't think Michael Corleone was spreading money around like Jimmy uh, Conway is. No, like, no, he's smart with his money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he comes in with all this energy, orders a seven and seven from Henry. And when Polly introduces him, he slips Henry that $20 bill into his shirt pocket and says, keep him coming. See, Jimmy was one of the most feared guys in the city. I mean, he was first locked up at 11 and he was doing hits for mob bosses when he was 16. See, hits never bothered Jimmy. It was business. So right there, and from everything I've read about Jimmy Burke, this is a truly scary guy. Yes. Yes. 11 uh, years old, though. Jesus. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he had been he had been in the foster system mm-hmm. and had some really really bad experiences in the foster system and he just learned the lesson of I got to be tougher and harder than anybody else around me, you know. This is not the guy you need to be having as a father figure in your life. But what Jimmy really loved to do, what he really loved to do was steal. I mean, he actually enjoyed it. Jimmy was the kind of guy who rooted for the bad guys in the movies. <laughs> Which I think is a great line because that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, true. Very true. And we see him taking licenses from uh, truck drivers. And I love the little details. One of the details is that he takes the license and looks at it. And it's like, now I know where you live and I know who you are. Mm. So that's a threat. Yeah. But then he also slips a $50 bill back into the wallet when he hands it back to the driver. Yeah. That's a bribe. You know, we got a carrot and a stick put together. And all of these guys ended up working for Jimmy Conway. Henry, come here. Say hello to Tom. Hey. How you doing, Andrew? We're just going to be working together. Young Tommy, which is Joseph D'Onofrio, which I couldn't find out. I don't think he's related to Vincent D'Onofrio, but it's such an unusual last name. I didn't find anything that said they were related, but. Yeah. And this is obviously a really important meeting between Henry and Tommy for the first time. You know, we see them bribe the cops, and now we see Henry and Tommy out selling cigarettes. Whoa, whoa, what do you think you're doing? Oh, it's all right. Why, well, you got permission from your mother? How many pounds you need? What? Where'd you get those cigarettes? Get them out of here. Right. Get them out of here. And Henry, whose whole experience has been the mob controls everybody, is just like, <laughs> no, it's all right. And he says, no, it's okay. You don't understand. It's all We're all cool. Uh, and they grab him. 
I love the two guys' reactions. <laughs> They're both, oh, yeah, is it all right? Is it all right, bro? Right? Yeah. But seeing Tommy, I mean, Tommy, the move here, and by the way, he was also, the same actor was also in Bronxdale, but seeing him move, like, slowly around the tr- uh, car uh, and then, you know, take off, it's just smart. Like, as soon as he hands the cigarettes over, he looks over, he sees, he knows, right? Because Tommy, Tommy is more world-weary than Henry. Tommy has been, you know, Henry's kind of coming into it kind of new. This kid is Irish, half Irish, half Italian kid. And yeah, he's been doing little things for them, but like actually understanding who the cops are, who these agents are. Tommy's clearly been picked up a number of times. So he knew immediately by the look of these guys who they were. So having him move around the car and then take off to tell everybody what's going on, I thought was funny. Well, and this is part of my reframing of the movie in my mind, because in Mm -hmm. my mind, we've been with Henry and then Henry is with Jimmy and then Tommy joins Jimmy. So it seems from the way the movie is happening that Henry is is working with Jimmy long before Tommy and Tommy is the later addition. Mm -hmm. But what I actually think is that Tommy was born to this world. Yeah. Yeah. He's he was in it from the very, very beginning. He's a known quantity. Henry has been slowly working his way in and has only now been allowed to meet Tommy who way outranks him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Um, uh, but Tommy runs up to Tutty and says, you know, that Henry got pinched. Yeah. And we're suddenly in court again, man. Scorsese's ability to just propel us forward. <laughs> it happens real fast. And we see little looks between yep. the judge and the lawyers. Yep. Like adjusting ties and things. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they let him out. Congratulations. Here's your graduation. I think this is such a great twist on what your expectations are, you know? Yeah. And listen, again, this is where Scorsese is a master at where he puts the camera, especially with De Niro, with Jimmy, that character of Jimmy, right? The the angles with which he shoots De Niro, when De Niro does that thing that everybody makes fun of with De Niro, like, hey, you, you kept your mouth shut. You know, the, the angle look that he does, the angle thing that he does. First, when we see Henry meet him for the first time, does the same thing to him by putting the money in his pocket and telling him to keep coming. It's the same angle. And boom, this close up here, same thing, right? He's like kind of in and intimate. And De Niro has that energy when he has that angle on his face to get you to like believe everything he's saying and want and have you want to be liked by this guy. So you understand again why Henry, you know, falls under that spell. I thought you'd be mad. Man, I'm not mad. I'm proud of you. You took your first pace like a man. And you learn the two greatest things in life. I think this is critical to the movie. Mm-hmm. Never ride on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. And it establishes, it's so funny because, like, I think this is perfect structure in that it establishes plants. What is the big conflict? You right. never rat on your friends. Right. That is, you never say anything. You never talk to the cops, which is what he's going to do in the end. Like, and so this movie comes about, what does it take for Henry Hill to go from the guy who would never rat on his friends yeah. to ratting on his friends? What's funny in now watching this more times and studying more is like, again, I go, there is actually no honor here. Yes, Henry didn't talk at this moment. Mm. But the actual reason that people really aren't talking is that they're fucking scared. Yes. It's not because of honor, right. you know? Right. Because there is no honor here. And I love the the next moment where they open up the door and there are all the mobsters <laughs> led by Polly, who says his, this is his first line in the movie. Mm. Hey, here he is, here he is. Oh, you broke it, Jerry. It's so fun. Mm-hmm. They make it seem so fun, right? That you're being indoctrinated into this world. Mm-hmm. And they're all probably there who are all scared themselves but they're all there because Polly told him to be there. 
So you, they're not going to, you know, deny him. So they're all like celebrating and whatever. And well, and if he had talked, he would have died. Right. Right. Exactly. You know? Would have been killed in prison. Yeah. Hundred percent. We're at the airport where the song that's playing is, I think, Stardust starts Billy Ward, and now we see our first shot of Ray Liotta since the opening. This is a sexy shot. What are oh, your thoughts is. on this, Steve? He go. This is rarely do you see shots of men being shot this way in the 90s right like he is shot from the foot feet all the way up to his body he is leaning back on this car he's in fantastic shape it's a great gray suit and he looks like a cool motherfucker man and the way they shoot him is sexy and powerful right and that's normally how women are shot in films and still kind of now shot in films but like it's rare when you see men shot in this way. And I don't mean Brad Pitt close up on the abs or 300 or anything like that. This is a slow pan up this dude's body. That's a sexy shot, you know. Well, and it's style. Yes, you know? style. Yes. It's it's having great style. And again, it goes, it, you know, I hadn't thought as much about status until you brought it up, mm-hmm. but now I'm seeing it everywhere. And this is a perfect example of this is the coolest cat in the neighborhood now. Yes. You 100%. know, and we're supposed to feel like he's cool, you know, because he's oh yeah. We've seen him do the noble thing. We've seen him care about a guy whose hand is, sh- is shot. We've seen him take a beating so he can live this life. We've seen him, you know, kind of succeed and do the things that he's doing here and be revered and liked. So when he shows up as this cool guy, the work has been done for Ray Liotta by this young kid and his own voiceover and Scorsese as a director. So by the time we get to this moment, we're already ready to like this guy and to see it be fully realized in Ray Liotta. We're like a hundred percent on board after this shot. Well, because the young character earned all earned this position for us. Yep. And now I'd like to tell you how Ray Liotta finally earned his way onto this movie, yeah. which is so Erwin Winkler continues to be just absolutely against it. Yeah. Ray has gone through all these hoops, done all this stuff, never gotten anywhere. They tested everyone and saw everyone and they still don't have anyone to play Henry Hill. And one night Erwin Winkler is out at a restaurant with his wife and who is at the restaurant, but Ray Liotta. Yeah. Do you think Ray Liotta stalked him? Yes. And- one hundred percent. So do I. I think Ray found out where Erwin Winkler was going to be and goes up and says, "Can I talk to you for a minute?" And Erwin Winkler goes, "Okay." And they step outside, and Ray Liotta says, "Why he wants to get the part?" And Erwin Winkler is sold and calls up Scorsese and says, "You're right, <laughs> casting." Erwin, can I talk to you for a second? For a second outside. <laughs> <laughs> now, did he make him an offer he can't refuse? <laughs> like that's what I want to know. I want this fucking part, Erwin. I want this fucking part. <laughs> I don't know, but. It worked. And there's a lot of stories like that. You know how uh, Julia got pretty women, pretty woman. There's a lot of people, a lot of actors who like when they see a role they want, they will go after it and use whatever they can to get it. And sometimes it's about convincing the producer to finally see it. I mean, they had to convince them to use a Brando in Godfather. So, you know. Well, I mean, I I know I've said it a million times, but, you know, there are multiple directors who say 90% of directing is casting. Mm. And while I actually don't put it quite at 90% because that's a very high percentage, Mm. if you don't have the casting right, you don't have a movie. You know, like it is is a make or break. And most the the ability to see an actor in a role is most people, particularly most executives, do not have that ability. Yeah. Remember, this is Winkler who, you know, did Rocky. And we, we, something we've talked about on the show, we've done an episode on Rocky and how his house alone had to fight to be the lead in that film as well. And so maybe Irwin kind of likes that or responds to it in a way, you know? Yeah. 
So uh, we're at the airport and we hear all about all the stuff going in and out of the airport, all of the relatives and connections we have to people at the airport, and that when stuff was moving out, they'd get a tip and that would allow them to go take out a, a truck. Hmm. Uh, and the biggest money maker was Jimmy. Whenever we needed money, we'd rob the airport. And to us, it was better than Citibank. And then as this is happening, because Scorsese's always going to be doing multiple things at once, we see this trucker, we're like at a diner and the trucker goes outside and then comes back inside the next second, super angry and says, Got a phone? Come on, come on, got a phone? Over there. Two niggers just stole my truck. Can you believe that shit, huh? So two things about this. One guy, obviously this truck driver is in on it. Yeah. And it's also, because this was a very, very common excuse. It's also part of why African-American communities had a reputation for far more crime than they were actually committing because there were people that were always blaming it on them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm halfway through that uh, new Max doc on the Boston couple that did that when the guy killed his wife and oh, right. blamed it on a couple of black people and, and young black men and, and, and the drama that caused in, in a city like Boston. And so, yeah, that you're right. hundred percent. We've seen that a hundred percent happen multiple, multiple times. I mean, what is, um, uh, uh, to kill a mockingbird, if not that, you know? Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. We're at a club and the camera is going to move through the gangsters as if we're in Henry Hill's perspective, walking into the space, which to me, it's sort of, parallels the Copacabana with Karen having the experience of walking in the space for the first time in a long steady cam shot. As we go through, we're going to see all the characters and hear all their names and their nicknames. And they're going to say, how you doing? And stuff like that. Uh, Scarsese's idea of like, this was flying into Mount Olympus and remembering all the gods, the legends of the past before the fall, before they're all gone. <laughs> like that's how he wanted you to feel. Yeah. L a lot of these guys are monsters. Hmm. Yeah. Um, they, uh, uh, there's a restaurant which we actually saw because it's in Wolf of Wall Street called oh. Rayo's in New York. Very mm -hmm. famous Italian restaurant where people own a table. So you can't get in unless you're one of the people that own the table. And it's the detective guy who uh, is talking to Jordan Belfort, who really was the detective guy for Jordan Belfort. He's also in this. He brought Scorsese, Ray Liotta, and Lorraine Bracco to Rayo's yeah. uh, to have dinner. And all the mobsters that have tables there came up and told all their stories and they had a great time laughing and drinking wine and eating great Italian food, hearing the story of real mobsters. And a lot of those people are in this scene, <laughs> which is wow. interesting because uh, Coppola yeah. was very clear about saying, I never went to meet mobsters. The right. only one on that movie who actually went to talk to actual mobsters was James Conn. As far yeah. As yeah. Is like for, so for him, it's Godfather is a romantic Sure. Operatic view of what the mafia is. Yeah, yeah. Filtered through Coppola's Italian American sensibility. That's not what this is. Yeah. <laughs> Scorsese did go and meet the mobsters, and not only did he meet them and hear their stories, but he brought them into the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone's favorite one is after we hear about Nicky Eyes and Mikey France and Jimmy Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice. Like, I'm gonna go get the papers, get the papers. And it's funny, that is certainly one of my favorite characters we meet in the Bamboo Lounge. And guess what? It's one of our patrons as well. As you know, we have our patrons can ask questions when you get to a certain tier yeah. uh, about upcoming films. And this question came from Maxwell Israels, who says, in the Bamboo Lounge, do you guys have a favorite side character that Henry talks about? Mine would be Jimmy two times. I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. John, I think that was ours too. Yeah, it is. I mean, how can you not? I mean, that, that's such an unusual um, intro and everyone talks about uh, him and uh, does imitations of him and 
Um, it's just a funny way. It's something you wouldn't expect. You know, you'd expect Fat Tony or whatever they say there for some of these characters, or Little Mikey or whatever. But like the the Jimmy Two Times is something I'd never seen before, and the guy does a great job adjusting his ties. He says that, which I thought is great. But for me, it's it, overall. If I can expand just a little bit further out, Frankie Carbone is my favorite. Oh, yeah. other side character of the film because uh, i love uh the character of frankie carbone played by frank severo just the voice the hair hair the look uh and i'm actually sad when i see him hanging in the meat locker oh, yeah. because you know because he's such a stupid guy <laughs> you just feel bad for him that he probably stumbled his way into the into the mob and ended up just being a guy that, that had to be taken out you know and probably would have never opened his mouth because he's too stupid to open his mouth but you know, uh, Jimmy kills him anyway. So yeah, he, he's my favorite overall. Um, so thank you, Maxwell, for your question. And of course, if you want to sign up on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, you could ask your own question about Goodfellas or Raging Bull is coming up next. And I know there's going to be a lot of questions for that. One. Yeah. Now, again, I want to stress this again. If we were doing this shot <clears throat> at a, a gang hangout in an inner city, you'd have just as many nicknames for all yep. these guys. Totally. They'd all be black, right? Possibly almost all black, maybe Latino, what have you. Maybe a couple of hard-ass white guys would be in there obviously from poor uh, economic situations. But we would go panning through it, right? And we'd hear all the nicknames uh, that you hear uh, about certain gang members. And so this is the thing, again, like I challenge people to watch it and listen to it. And like, you know, this is the same thing. This is the same thing. Don't be fooled just because they're wearing suits and whatever, that's the outfit for that particular gang. Another gang, uh, inner city gangs have a different outfit, different look that they want to look, but there's no difference. And so to me, that's what I think is really important when you're watching this movie and understanding um, what he's trying to say overall about this idea of the mob or gangs or anything, that, or any organization that's like that's, that is a criminal organization. You know, So yeah, it's fun, it's cute, and it's a great way into knowing these people. But they're all killing people. They're all hurting people. They're all stealing, robbing, and doing whatever they can so they don't come up light in the envelope to Paul. You know? Yep, 100% agree. And what, one of the things we see is that we're wheeling some fur coats into this place because this is a place where we're fencing stolen merchandise. And there's some argument about, like, it's the middle of summer. What do I need fur coats for? But he takes them anyway. Yeah. And it's also pretty ratty, you know? And what uh, they said was they really shot real locations. This is all real locations. Yeah. And they really didn't want to clean it up. Like they wanted it to feel real lived in. And Lorraine Bracco, I know, said some of these places were really gross, you know, because they didn't clean up the booze stains on the floor. They stunk and they were, you know, they're kind of nasty places. Yeah. It's not bad for an actor to be in an authentic situation. Yeah. And kind of yeah, feed off that. To us, those goody good people who work shitty jobs for bum paychecks and took the subway to work every day, worried about their bills, were dead. And they were suckers. They had no balls. If we wanted something, we just took it. If anyone complained twice, they got hit so bad, believe me, they never complained again. Again, there is no honor here. You yeah, know? no, no. Yeah. You're right. Um, the trap and- is to fall into the romanticism of these of these scenes, right? And what Scorsese is trying to trick you with is that these are not people to be romanticized. These are not people that were good people. And so you have to kind of watch yourself and maybe ask yourself these questions as you're watching these movies about how much you buy into this stuff. And if you do buy into it, what does that say about you? You know? Well, that's the real genius is like, yeah. I'm going to romanticize these figures, 
while you should be figuring out that you shouldn't romanticize them. Yeah. Right. You know, exactly. like that's, that's next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end up on Ray who just looks spectacular in this suit, black shirt with that big white collar that almost entirely covers the tie. Mm-hmm. So Scorsese, as he is about most things is extremely particular about costuming. Mm-hmm. And in particular, this collar, which I haven't seen stylistically a lot of other places, this really big collar, it had to be pressed exactly right. And you know who the only person Scorsese felt was good enough to correctly press this collar? No. His mom. Of course. So Catherine Scorsese is backstage, you know, with her iron. And if Marty doesn't think it's good enough, he sends it back to mom to re-iron the collar. (laughs) I ironed it, you know, I ironed it. He also tied Ray Liotta's tie every single day. Marty wow. Did, which I love. I'm terrible at tying ties. It's mm. just, I suck at it. Like I, I, getting it the right length and having it the right. But, but I think the idea of just that personal moment between a director and the actor being very close to them and doing that yeah. thing, yeah. that's a neat sort of way to connect with your actor in addition to making sure you get your tie tied the way you want it. Right. Well, it's also a way of like confirming that he is the lead. You know, there's a thing about winning a role and then doing the role, right? There's yeah. two, those are two separate things. So if you've got one of the greatest living directors tightening your tie every day in a subconscious way, it's his way of saying, I choose you every day to be. The That's a great point. And so it makes sense. It's a smart move by Marty if that was the intention. Well, in particular, when you're showing up to go toe to toe with De Niro and Pesci, exactly. you know, like that, having that backup is great. One other thing, by the way, so uh, De Niro talked a lot to Henry Hill. Mm. We'll get into that a little later. Mm. Uh, Ray Liotta made the choice to never meet Henry Hill. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But because Nick Pelleggi had interviewed him over and over again, mm. he had all the interviews on cassette. And so... Leota got copies of the cassette and every day driving to set, he popped the cassette into his mom's, he drove his mom's car because he didn't have a lot of money in her cassette player and listened to Henry Hill talk every single day back and forth to set. Yeah, that makes sense. The, w- this guy comes in whose name I always forget, but who kind of looks like Danny Aiello um, and the, has a little nod with Henry. We have a look over to Jimmy and suddenly Jimmy comes in, moves in fast in those great Scorsese camera moves and we hear about the Air France job which is that basically money that changes from American money to French money or European money by servicemen and other expats gets shipped back. And there's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars coming into Idlewild and that basically there's no security. So let's talk about Mike Starr for a second, because that's who you're talking about. That's his name. Thank you. Yes. This guy, some of you may not know, but this guy has been part of some of your favorite films, whether they're artistic films or mainstream films in great character uh, moments. Uh, he's fantastic in Miller's Crossing. Oh, right. As the big dude with the smaller guy who is, uh, you know, with Albert Finney's crew. He's hilarious in Ed Wood. In Dumb and Dumber, he's the guy that they run into in the shop and they do the annoying sounds next to with Karen Duffy. He's the one in the truck with them who they scream at. Um, and in Uncle Buck, he is the clown that Uncle Buck punches in the face. Mm. When you see, when you watch that movie. So a a great character actor who's been in a number of things here. And so I love him in this movie. It has a nice authenticity so that when you see him later in the garbage truck in slow motion, you know, getting turned over and killed and and finding out that he'd been killed. It's, it's a, it's a sad moment because the guy sticks out. He's such a good character actor. So 
I like that they used Mike Starr. And it was smart of Scorsese to use a guy like this that immediately has that voice and that kind of energy and and uh, girth that you buy into this guy being a security guard and being a guy who could t- uh, help them pull off this heist, you know? One of the things he does so well throughout this whole movie, well, and throughout his whole career, is mm. face casting and body casting. Which oh, yeah. is like you, you, you see this person and you, re- and you notice them. Yeah. You know, like the camera moves through a crowd and you notice these individuals because they're so unique to look at, you know? Yep. 100%. Um, I'm really glad you had his name in his career because I know it's like he's one of those, you know, I know I've seen him in a million things. Yeah. yeah. By the way, I also think, you know, as I was saying, we're moving through the crowd and see all these people. I think it's in this scene is Vincent Gallo is one of the people mm-hmm. somewhere in here. Yeah. Um, we're back at the table and Tommy is telling a story. Oh. And I won't go into the whole story, but the story is basically that he's been picked up by cops and they're asking him questions and he's being belligerent and getting beaten up. He's telling him to go fuck his mothers. What he's telling him. <laughs> he's telling the cops to go fuck their mothers. And what's important about this again, because we already had the theme where we said the most important things, you know, you keep your mouth shut and you don't uh, squeal on your friends. That's what this scene is too, yeah. is that he's talking about, this is how I stood up to the cops and I didn't squeal on anybody. Right. Uh, and it's a really funny story. And Joe Pesci tells the story in a, in a really funny way. And Henry Hill says, <laughs> "Really funny, <laughs> really funny." Uh, what do you mean, I'm funny? <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? Okay, this is a legendary scene. Yeah, a legendary story. Yes. So, um, Nick Pileggi says that this was improvised on the set. Yeah. He says that he says that um uh Scorsese told Pesci to do this to Leota and they wanted to catch Leota's natural reaction to this as an actor and mess with him in the reactions. Yeah. That is that is in fact not true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That is not what happened. So and it was funny funny Nick Pileggi as he talked about the movie, he didn't like being on the set. So he wasn't actually on the set very much. I doubt he was on the set this day. And what he said, which I 100% agree with, is that if you don't have a specific job to do, movie sets are the most boring place in the world. I can only imagine. They're just, because it's just, they're just setting up lighting all day and everyone's waiting around. There's just like for the director, for the AD or for the actor preparing the DP, like it's super hard work. But if you're just there, it's boring. So this is what actually happened. First of all, or this is what I've read has actually happened, uh, is Pesci says this is a thing that happened to him, that he was talking to a mobbed-up guy who did this move on him to try to scare him. Oh, wow. And he told Scorsese this story, and Scorsese said, we should put that in the movie. And then they, because they had massive rehearsals. Right. And they improvised this on rehearsals over and over again. And then, so so the first time they did it, it was getting Ray Liotta's natural reaction. He didn't know what was happening or what was coming. It was an improv created by Pesci. But then they they forged it and they worked on it and they tightened it. And then they, and, and Scorsese recorded all these improvs and then he put it into a script and still it was locked down. And what Pesci said is like, you have to lock it. You don't improvise when you're shooting, which yeah. I, and for the most part, film is expensive and timing is really critical in terms of camera moves, in terms of focus, in terms yeah. of getting everything right. And so, yes, it is totally built out of improv, but right. this is also really rehearsed and fine tuned. Yeah, of course. Cause I mean, you see the long, pause from ray that is so good the long pause yeah just staring at at uh joe pesci which I, I think is great and you know we should take a moment and i don't know if you have this already in your notes for later on in the show steve but we should take a moment this tommy guy was much more vicious than we see in the film oh yeah and the guy was over six feet tall 
Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you're going to cast a guy to play a guy that is not six feet tall, uh, uh, sorry, if you're going to cast a guy that's not six feet tall to play a guy who's six feet tall, you've got to really cast someone who's going to kind of make up for the height with their performance. And Tommy is chilling. I mean, Pesci is chilling as Tommy throughout this whole movie. And this scene itself, the first time you watch this scene, you are Ray Liotta. Like, you oh, are yeah. legitimately like, what the fuck, out of nowhere. Because you've seen Tommy be crazy. You've seen Tommy be a little unhinged or have little moments. And certainly at the beginning, you see him knifing a dude who's close to death already in the trunk out of anger. So you know that this guy is not a character to mess with. Uh, and so you have that moment where he turns on him, possibly turns on Henry, and you don't know what the real truth is in that moment. Is Henry going to die? He's not going to die. What's this going to lead to? And I don't know about you, Steve, but I have had friends like this. Well, quote unquote, friends. I've known people like this in my life, in the military, in the fraternity that I was in for a brief time, and uh, in my life occasionally at workplaces. People like this who just turn on a dime and you're like, oh, fuck, you know, and you don't know what to do in those moments because you got to navigate around this person's anger because they have this like thing within them that the switch gets flipped for whatever reason. Someone says something or someone, uh, you know, without intending to offends them and they immediately turn on a dime. And it is scary to see the kind of life leave their eyes and they go right into that mode. So I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but oh, I've experienced chilling, man. I have definitely experienced it more than one time. Yeah. A couple of times where I was like, am I going to have to step into a thing, you know, and deal with uh, some stuff? It's just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? He says, funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? He says, and, and a guy tries to jump in, as humans do, and says, Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? And then it's just the silence mm. is so good. And you could see Ray Liotta plays it so well. And you could, cause you could see him going, what the fuck is happening here? Like, what is, <laughs> what am I in the middle of? Yeah. I don't understand how I got here. I don't know what's really going on. I don't know. You know, and what, one of the great things choices Scorsese makes is I would probably have cut to close-ups mm. at this point because oh, yeah. that's, in general, Wider shots are less intense and closer shots are more intense. There's all sorts of times that's not true, but yeah. in general, you move in. So I would have cut the close-ups. But what makes this so good is that he stays in mediums because you see all the people in the background yeah. in the awkward moment. And, and Pesci, I love the way he plays this. He says, you mean, so, let me understand this, because you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? And, and everyone else around him is super scared. Like, they try to stop him, right? They try to stop Tom. Like, oh, he was joking. Said, no, no, no. He's an adult. He knows what he fucking said. So th the way he's building towards it is super scary, man. Not just... You know how you tell the story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Yeah. <laughs> What's so funny is is because I y y all of you did not hear me say those lines because I'm sure that I cut to uh, the great Joe Pesci saying them. Yeah. But John can attest there are times I can't not take on a little bit of the of the oh, great performance because it's just in my head. It's so powerful. It's fun, of course. We all love to do that. Um, but yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's just so well performed by both of them and by everyone around them. By the oh, way. yeah. You have to have the other actors involved in the scene buy into it by staying silent or looking legitimately afraid uh, or trying to stop it with an occasional word or two so that it heightens the tension because it looks like Tommy's not going to be stopped at all. He's going to get across to Henry what the fuck is going on here. So, yeah. And then there's this pause that is the perfect amount of long and awkward. It just goes on. And you're literally, as you said, seeing it the first time. Oh, yeah. Someone's going to pull a gun. Someone's going to die. Like, what the fuck is going to happen? And then Henry Hill and Ray Liotta plays this so great, bursts into laughter and goes... Get the fuck out of here to Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. And everyone laughs. Uh, you're going to break. I think you might break under questioning, Henry. <laughs> that So that is a line I never heard. Uh-huh. For some reason that went by me. And that is, again, we're setting up this thing mm-hmm. that we're touching on multiple times. Because, of yeah. course, that is what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. What? The, why did... Why... Did Tommy do this? Because Tommy, look, because Scorsese doesn't have the chance or opportunity to show you how vicious this Tommy guy is. Because, look, if you look at the amount of screen time Pesci has, it, it is much less than Leota and De Niro in the movie. So you only have certain moments to really drive across this character. So you have to make the most of the limited amount of time that you have. So you've established his connection with Leota. You've established, you know, that they have a friendship. Because remember, they were kids when we saw them the first time. They're kids and they're younger, whatever. Now it's Pesci coming in. Now it's Leota coming in. So you have this moment here in a way to show you how chilling this guy actually was, how scary this guy really was. And you also show that Henry and um, Tommy have an equality here. Because in real life, Henry was seven years older than Tommy. So Mm -hmm. it was a different situation when they got to know each other, but in the way the film was presented, they're equals. And so having this moment happen, it was, it's also a way of showing that Tommy is a guy you cannot trust. And he feels like he's owed certain things or can treat people in certain ways. Cause we see as the scene goes on, how he treats the guy who runs the bar, how he treats the waiter uh, and all of this. So it ends in a funny way, but we see like that this is a guy that will, that has no problem not paying any bills that has no problem scaring his friend possibly thinking something could happen or you could kill him or, and attacking the owner of the establishment that he is uh, drinking at and running up a bill on. So this guy, that ha- he has no limits. So you have to take advantage of the limited screen time to show that to the audience so they can factor then lit later on when he's uh, doing some of the things that he does in the film. So for me, first of all, I think this is a super important parallel to the spider scene later on. Mm. Because the when is Tommy, when will Tommy have a sense of humor or not? Right. Is critical. That's the first thing. The second thing I think, and this is where, and again, I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm just saying this is how I've reframed the movie watching it this time. Mm -hmm. Is that I always saw it as Tommy and Henry are friends and equals. Yeah. And that this is a moment that happens between them. But then I went, what if Henry is just one of a whole bunch of foot soldiers? Yeah. That Tommy has worked with sometimes and not worked with other times, and his status is much higher. More like the diff- power differential between Spider and Tommy. Yeah. You know, I mean, Henry's a grown-up and 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 part of the, the crew, so he's higher status than Spider. Yeah. But like, and I suddenly went, oh, this scene becomes much more chilling when the power dynamic is not equal, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I just, and I, and I also go, because it could be like, 
I think I actually, I, well, let me ask this question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was Tommy ever close to violence? Was there any possibility of violence or was this all a joke? No, I think this was all a joke, but I think Tommy got off on it is what I mean. Mm, that's a good way to put it. There are some people who get off on playfully threatening. They look, they look like they're serious, but inside they're just enjoying fucking with people. There are people like that, unfortunately. So I, my thinking of it at this moment is that's mostly what it is. And I also, where, where I've always thought there really was no possibility this would ever become mm -hmm. violent. That's how I'd always thought about it. It was really all a joke. And now I'm kind of like, no, with Tommy, there's always a possibility. If there yeah. Violent. Yeah. If Henry had pushed back in the wrong way, it could have become violent. Yeah. I, um, yes. So as you just mentioned, um, the owner of the restaurant who is Sonny Buns played by, uh, Tony Darrow is going to yeah. come up and what a moron. You don't go up to somebody publicly and tell them in front of their friends that yeah. they owe you seven grand. I don't even mean that a mobster. You don't do that to anybody. That is not the way to handle this. Yeah, you're right, Steve, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but that is exactly what he does. And Tommy immediately gets pissed, breaks glass over him, throws stuff at him, starts laughing at him. And, and, and then he draws his gun and points it at Henry. And it's just all gets real scary. Yeah. Uh, and then I do love the button on the scene was he makes a joke about the seven grand and says, you want to laugh this prick last week? Asked me to christen his kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I for 7,000 my charge. <laughs> You're a little funny guy. <laughs> he attacks him. Yeah. And then we cut to Sonny going to talk to Polly because and I, again, the shot here is great because it's in close up, Steve, and you see, the after effects of Tommy yes. hitting him in the head with that uh, glass. Yeah. Well, yeah. With the bandaid on. Yeah. And he goes to Polly and says that he's scared that, that uh, Tommy owes him all this money that he's, you know, doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, and Polly says, taking on a role of weakness, which is obviously not true. You think you're the only one? I talked to them a million times. They don't listen. If you tell them, he'll, he'll stop. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to wind up being declared an MIA. They're going to find me in the back of a car somewhere in the weeds. And then we see, which is so interesting to me, you see that Henry is in the room and listening. Yeah. And I'm like, because I'm, in my mind, I'm like, well, Henry's on Team Tommy. So why yeah. is he privy to this conversation? Sonny, tell him what we talked about. Okay. Here's my question. Yeah. Is all of this a setup? Yes. I agree. 100%. Yeah. I didn't think it, I don't think the first time I saw the movie did I think this was all a setup. Mm -hmm. I thought the thing with Tommy happened just happened, but now I'm like, "Oh, I think and and in in reading the book, it is 100% a setup. They yeah. on purpose roll up these huge tabs with no intention of paying them back, right. knowing that they're going to get into the restaurant and then essentially destroy it from the inside." Yeah. Then is Polly a part of this or is yes. it only Tommy and Okay. So Polly is 100% a part of this. And if you watch it, and, and again, it, it, think changing how you think of something yeah. changes the way you see the scene. And when you, if you think of it and I'll ask our listeners, obviously I want to know what you think, yeah. but also watch the scene thinking that Polly is not a part of it at all. And watch the thing scene thinking that Polly has set this up with Tommy and Henry from the beginning mm. and all of Polly's protestations about this. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know anything about the restaurant business. Nothing. All I know is to sit down and order a meal. I don't know how to make a restaurant. And now, as in all good cons, Sonny is pushing Polly to do what to, to take over the restaurant. Yeah. He's yeah. begging Polly to take over the restaurant. And we're also wrangling Henry in to be a part of this as well. Yeah. 
Uh, finally, he agrees he's going to take a part ownership in the restaurant. And then we go into this great montage where we hear what actually happens. First of all, we're seeing all this contraband being loaded in and sold out of the restaurant. Yeah. Now the guy's got Paulie as a partner. Any problems, he goes to Paulie. Trouble with the bill, he can go to Paulie. Trouble with the cops, deliveries, Tommy, he can call Paulie. So that sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. You've got this powerful guy on your side. But the, here's the downside. You got to come up with Polly's money every week, no matter what. Business bad? Fuck you, pay me. Oh, you had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. Place got hit by lightning, huh? Fuck you, pay me. That's right out of the book. That's how Henry Hill talks. I, I wanted to get a t-shirt for the longest time that said, fuck you, pay me. Because I love the I love this moment. I love the, the way he hammers those two phrases home through this sequence. Because it's true. It's, it's the situation there where... Once you bring in another partner, you can't control the situation. And if they're in a better position than you are financially, you've, you've kind of fucked yourself if you don't know this person, especially when you're bringing a gangster, for God's sakes. Well, and I'll, moron. Yeah. I'll, even with a big corporation, I, my, I don't know if you had this experience, but my guess is there were gigs I did as an editor where I was on a serious deadline. Mm. And it was like, you must get this thing done on this date. And I'm pulling all-nighters, doing massive amount of works. And yeah. they put more work on me, but don't pay me any more money. And then I finished the gig and spent a year trying to get paid from <laughs> yeah, a corporation, well, like a big corporation. Oh, yeah. So fuck you, pay me. Like, I made my fucking deadline. Yeah. Pay me the fucking money you owe me. <laughs> yeah. Like Jeff and I right now are battling uh, with above the line because they owe us thousands of dollars uh, because they sponsored uh, the hot mic. And for numerous months, and they have not paid us our money. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to take them to small claims court and see what happens there. Uh, and so, yeah, exactly. And they, it's been numerous months. And if I wanted to sue this company, I could, but I just don't see the logic in spending all that money and suing someone. I'd rather try to shame them or publicly take them to court and small claims court and recoup some of that. So, yeah, the, it happens all the time, especially in this business with a lot of freelancers and whatever. And, Whenever people reach out and want to sponsor the show, I always tell them now going forward, you pay up front. You'll get the product, you'll get the promotion, but you pay up front. And a lot of them turn that down because a lot of them want to angle and try to get you to give them free promotion, promising money, and then not pay you. You know, So it's a dirty business all around. Well, and I'll, so you made the comparison, which I think is absolutely accurate between the mob and things that go on in inner city gangs and stuff mm. like that. Well, frankly, I'm going to make the comparison between all sorts of businesses and large corporations mm. that use all sorts, maybe not the violent kind of techniques, but definitely deception and manipulation and taking advantage of the little guy mm. in order, because the big thing, like the reason that companies spend a lot of time to not pay you is every minute they're not paying you, they're making interest on the money that they have in their banks that is not going in your bank, mm. yeah. you know? So stalling always helps them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and of course, Paulie's running up his credits on this place. Tommy's running up credits. They're selling stuff out of this place. They're making lots of money on the place. And Sonny is going deeper and deeper into debt. He thought he brought in a par partner, but what he actually brought in was a drain. And then we hear, and then finally, and there's nothing left. Fucking shame. When you can't borrow another buck from the bank or buy another case of booze, you bust the joint out. You light a match. And we see them setting up to burn this place down. Which, um, I'd never watched The Sopranos, as you know. I re only recently watched The Sopranos. Yeah. This is a plot right out of The Sopranos. Yep. There's the buddy who runs the restaurant, and they end up taking a part in it, and they burn the place down. Artie Bucco. 
Artie Bucco, that's right. His wife told him not to, right? His yep. wife said, don't get involved with Tony, but this is what happens. Yeah. So we're outside in a car waiting for the, the building to catch on fire. And Tommy is talking about some girl who, and I, as a Jewish man, will say what he calls her, the Jew broad, Diane. I'm trying to bang this bro for a fucking month now. The only thing is she won't go out with me alone, you know? And immediately Henry's going, no. <laughs> And he, I love this. He goes, no, what? No. No, what, Henry? Who the fuck asked you anything? I didn't even ask you anything. At least wait to hear what I'm going to say. All right, what? I love Joe Pesci. This is a great friend moment, right? Like, look, the guy is a ruthless, crazy killer, Tommy. But I like that Scorsese has these moments that have fun moments between these guys to make you connect to the movie. So, yeah. But again, I, and again, I, I'll shut up about it for a while. But, yeah. but like, you, I, I always interpret it as this was a good friend moment. Yes. And now I watch it and go, this is an underling with someone who is much more powerful than him being pushed to do something he doesn't want to do. You know, mm. like, because I really do go like, wait, how much are they friends? Yeah, right. And in um, real life, this was Paulie's son who did this. So oh. it, it was even more fraught with power, like yeah. power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't. Um, and, and I'm going to, again, I am a Jewish man, and I think this is a perfect kind of Archie Bunker style sense of humor, what he says next. Prejudice against the tank. Fucking believe that. In this day and age, what the fuck is this world coming to? <laughs> I can't believe this. Prejudice against a Jew broad. Prejudice against the tank. What I love about that is that it, yes, is an example of anti-Semitism. It absolutely mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. But what's so great about it is that it is exploding these sort of statuses that we place each other on. Yeah. Like, that a, that a Jewish person should be lower status than an Italian person. And it, to me, it's just, and that's why it's like an Archie Bunker joke, is it exposes the ridiculousness of these prejudices that make no sense, you know? Yeah. Anyway, she won't go out with me alone unless her girlfriend comes with us. I figure you come along and go out with her girlfriend. See, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. You knew what? See what? What the fuck is wrong with that? <laughs> it's so funny. Ugh. I've had this moment. <laughs> yeah. And then he puts the screws on him. Tommy, why do you always do this? Hey, that fucking I... Tommy shit. What the fuck I asked you for, Henry? I'm asking you for a favor. I do a lot of fucking favors for you, don't I? I'm trying to bang this fucking bro. You want to help me out? And then as they're arguing, they realize, you know, that we've been watching little wafts of smoke yeah. here in the in the background. And suddenly the alarm is going off. And they're like, oh, they should have left a while ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that you see it in the background. It's hilarious. Yeah. So the first big transition in Henry Hill's life mm -hmm. was taking a part-time job at the cab stand. Mm -hmm. I think the next big transition in his life is when he gets pinched for selling cigarettes and he doesn't talk. Right. Now as an adult, we're setting up for some seriously big crimes, but the biggest transition in Henry Hill's life is going to be meeting Karen played by Lorraine Bracco. And I think before we go on what I'm sure will be a lovely and romantic first date, <laughs> this is a good time to end part one of our deep dive into Goodfellas. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We brought up a lot of stuff as we knew that we would. You can share with us those thoughts on our Facebook page. Do a search for the Cinephiles. It's Cine underscore files on Twitter. Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Uh, you can subscribe to the show at all the usual places on Apple podcast, on Spotify, on YouTube, on YouTube, leave your comments, Apple podcast, please leave your reviews. If you want to buy or stream Goodfellas along with every other movie we ever reviewed, that's at cinephiles.net. And if you want to support the show, you can do it at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, John, where could they reach you? 
You can always find me at the Roka says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. Uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roka says, where all my other shows live and breathe. And uh, my podcasts, other than the Cinephiles, that's the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic, they're out there for you all to subscribe to. So, yeah, a lot going on in the world of John Roka for sure. Thank you very much. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time as we can not conclude. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we're concluding our exploration of Goodfellas right here on The Cinephiles. How the fuck am I funny? <laughs>